Morning, everybody. Morning. I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bob. I've been invited to share some of my ideas on sponsorship with you uh, at a CA convention, but as all of us know, the 12-step program that we follow in all of our fellowships take the same background, and sponsorship definitely is one of those things that crosses over. Can you hear me in the back? Okay. If, if I get quiet, too quiet for you, please somebody tell me. If I stay sober tonight, I will have been sober for 9,838 days. And in that time, I have, uh, I think, learned a lot about sponsorship. I'm the product of good sponsorship, and I have tried to take what I've learned and make it be inside me and pass it on to others. And I think that if you, uh, you'll see that, that it's not that difficult, that it is that important, and I'm glad that there's so many people that would have an interest in it that they would be here. Probably wondering why am I wearing a tuxedo at 11.30 in the morning? Uh, you know, in the old days, you might have thought that I hadn't gone home yet. Uh, <laughs> but Ashley, it's to impress upon you the first lesson in sponsorship. Make sure the other person knows that you're better than they are. <laughs> the real truth is that at 2.30 this afternoon, one of our daughters is to be married, and uh, I'm invited. <laughs> I'd like to make a suggestion before we begin, and the suggestion is that you all take your pins and put them down in your notepads, and I'll tell you why. Because I have spent a lot of time preparing this talk, and I know what I'm going to tell you, and I think there is a better way if you just listen, and then, as you can see, it's being taped. T-Mark Tapes uh, would sell you a copy of it, and, and I promise you this will, be the, this will be a talk that you will want to hear again and again and think it through and make it be part of yourself, and that um, it's a suggestion. Okay, let's talk about sponsorship. First of all, it, it's important to know that a 12-step call and sponsorship are not the same thing. On a 12-step call, we go out and we try to take care of a, of a situation and show somebody in whatever way we can that there is hope, that there's a way that they can change their lives. Sponsorship is a method that the program has developed which allows us to really show how we can change our lives and lead people through what has already been proven using the 12 steps. It's kind of a, a listen to them and tell them kind of thing. And that what happens is that it gives you the opportunity to t take your recovery to a new plateau as well. That this thing about sponsorship isn't just for the new person. It's for us, the sponsoree, or the sponsor as well. You know, I've, I figured out a long time ago that I could drag you into this program and into recovery with my strength, but I can't keep you there with my strength. And that's why sponsorship and the program is so important to carry somebody forward. You know, it's kind of like um, doing your kids' homework for them, that they might get a good grade 
and they'll have it turned in on, in time, but they haven't learned the important lesson. And the lesson isn't just to hand in the work. And so in sponsoring somebody, it's really important that you teach them to do the work. I'll tell you another thing about sponsorship. I can tell you within two percentage points of how successful you will be or this new person will be. It's either 0% or 100%. There's no middle ground in recovery. You either are or you're not. And that I think you as a sponsor should know that it is that important that what you do with this person, the effort that you put into this new person's life, can completely change their life. I hope that by the end of this talk that I can make you feel more comfortable about engaging in sponsorship. Let's talk about attitude. I believe, now you're going to hear me say that a bunch of times, uh, I believe this is the way I feel, this is the way I see it, uh, because as, as, as I was introduced, there was a little thing read that the, the ideas or comments of the speaker are his. I'm not here representing AA, I don't represent CA, I'm not giving you a book report of something that I read about this stuff. I am trying to tell you what I've learned about this so you can kind of throw it into your heads and see if it might work for you. Attitude should be, I believe, that you're responsible for the effort, not the results. It's a big difference. We've all played Trivial Pursuit. You know, sometimes you get on a roll or somebody gets on a roll and they, they answer 10 questions in a row and just boom, boom, boom. Somebody says, ah, oh, those are just easy. You know, the reason they're easy is because you know the answer. And if you didn't know the answer, that's a hard question. Well, sponsorship allows a new person to get the right answer without having to know the right answer because people who already know the answer can help them answer it for them. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a question in Trivial Pursuit that is, what is the highest lake in, in the world? And I know that I've seen that question a whole bunch of times. And when, I see, when the question is read, I, I'm all excited, right, because I know this one. But I even forget it's Lake Titicaca. I even forget sometimes what the real answer is, even though I know I know the answer. Well, I think the same thing happens to us in this program. We learn the answer in our own, pro in our own programs, in our own experiences. But sometimes we forget because we haven't seen it or haven't used it in a long time. And that that's why it's important that we continue to refresh ourselves. And what better way to refresh ourselves on this program than to work with new people? Because we're, we have to kind of do our homework. And I don't mean you need to get the box out and go through 25 cards a day. But what I do mean is that we have to start thinking in a positive way about what it is that this program means to us. You know, Jeopardy is the same thing. Uh, as someone answers, we're watching Jeopardy on TV, and somebody or the it's not the question, the answer. I have to always reverse it. Um, when we hear somebody go beep and they say the, the answer is so-and-so or the question is so-and-so, it's real easy for us to say, oh, yeah, yep, I know that. But if no one goes beep, beep, 
We don't quite know what the answer is. And that, again, it's kind of right there, but we need somebody to help us, to remind us. And that, to me, is what sponsorship is about. Tell you another part of attitude. I believe that divine inspiration plays a part in sponsorship. It means that I don't need to know all the answers. First of all, it's important that I know I don't need to know all the answers. Otherwise, I might be paralyzed and be afraid to help somebody. Also, I'm not smarter than they are, but I do have more experience than they do, and I'm not afraid to show it, and I'm not afraid to demonstrate it. And I also think that it's important in this attitude that we not be afraid to say that we don't know what the answer is. If somebody comes to me and asks if I would consider being their sponsor, I always tell them this. I'd say, well, I'll tell you what, let's meet and let's talk about this. I don't take this casually. And, and I even formalize that part of it. And I say, well, let's either have lunch or have coffee or go have a Coke or whatever it might be. And then, or they even come to my office. And I sit down and I tell them, first of all, I ask them to tell me about themselves. And I listen. And I maybe do a little more quizzo. And, and I don't mean just their drinking life. I want to know a little about them. And I, I'm, I don't think this is quite a test, but I want them, I want to see if they're going to be really willing to be vulnerable and to be verbal about who they are. And so I ask them some very nosy questions and it helps me get to know them a little bit better. I then tell them that if, if I were to be their sponsor, I would become their temporary sponsor, which would mean that they could fire me or vice versa, I could fire them, and that it would be a kind of a no-fault thing. Thanks, but no thanks. Then I tell them what the rules are. The reason I have rules isn't because I think I'm such a hotshot. The reason I have rules is because I think I know how it works. At least I know how I can help people in this program successfully. And why should I change it? It, it takes a lot of time. Uh, if I were a house builder, and all I had to do was build a house every six weeks, and it didn't matter what it looked like, I'd build the same damn house. Why keep trying to figure out, well, we could put a new room here or a new room there, so I don't change how I do this. And here are the rules. First of all, can't take the first drink and you can't use. And I say it just like that. That's a rule. The other, then my next one is that you can't miss meetings. Now what that means is that this person and I establish ahead of time how many meetings we feel they should go to and they commit to that. So if they say, or we say, three meetings a week, and it's Sunday morning, they've been to one meeting, guess what they're doing that day? <laughs> they're going to two meetings. I also think that it's important that they shop for meetings, good meetings. There are a lot of bad meetings. I'm just, I mean, some people say you, you can never go to a bad AA meeting. You can go to a bad AA meeting and a bad CA meeting. Shop, find something. Look at big meetings, look at small meetings. 
Also, I think it's important in this meeting thing is that they don't go to too many meetings. Now, you probably don't hear very, very many people talk about that, but the whole idea is to get a life. And many of us have wives or families or husbands or, or jobs and other responsibilities, and we can't be going to meetings all day every day if we have to be doing those things. And I've seen a lot of people come into the programs and hide out in meetings instead of facing life. I mean, their lawn is this long, and, and they got leaky pipes that they haven't fixed, and they're just not taking care of life, life's business. The third rule is try to keep an open mind. Now, notice I said try to keep an open mind. It isn't keep an open mind because it's difficult. And what that means is, and I tell this especially to people that have been around on the program for a while that I am now sponsoring, is that you come in, you should come into this with the attitude that you don't know jack shit and that we're starting from ground zero and we're going to relook at everything. Another rule I have is no white lies. I am the last guy in the world that you want to lie to. The absolute last. I have to be the one that you always tell the truth to. Or that doesn't mean just what you say. It means what you don't say as well. We also agree that it is their responsibility to make contact with me every so often. If they're a brand new person, that every so often is every day. They do it, they have to, usually by telephone, and they have to find me. Now I have three telephone numbers. I have an office number, I have a home number, and I have a cell number. I can be found. And, and I tell everybody that I don't go to bed till about 11, 11.30. And um, through the years, let me tell you, because 9,800 days is a lot of weeks and a lot of, a lot of days. Our phone has had a lot of rings and that it's just how it works. It's part of that successful, if you want to call it, formula. You know, another thing that happens when they call, I mean, you don't have to be talking about step three or step eight or, it doesn't have to be heavy duty stuff. Most of the time it's developing that relationship with this person. And the way I do it, I'll, I'll do some little quizzes. We might have talked two days before about uh, something that they were going to do or that they were waiting for a lab report. They'd gone to the doctors. And I remember those kinds of things, and I ask about it. And uh, if their kids are coming into town, I chit-chat a little about that. And if I think that there's something that I might be able to throw in that might be helpful in that regard, I'll do it. And we develop a relationship. Now, I have to remind you that it's a two-way relationship. I also have to be willing to be vulnerable. I have to be willing to share my life with them. And that I do. And I'll tell you, if, uh, if anybody in my life, anybody in my family got into trouble or needed help, and I don't mean just blood transfusions, I mean something that anything where I needed to ring the bell and say, help, there'd be a lot of people on my block. They'd think the Rose Festival parade was coming through. 
Let's talk about some different ways to look at sponsorship. You know, the way I see it, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, this thing called life, this thing called sobriety, new life. When we buy a jigsaw puzzle, it comes in a box and it's got this picture on the front of it, right? Well, if the picture wasn't there, if it came in a baggie and, and we turned all the pieces over, I didn't quite mean it that way. <laughs> if, we, if we turned all the pieces over so we could see the picture side of that piece of the puzzle, but we didn't know what it was supposed to look like because we didn't have the box, we'd have a really difficult time of putting it together because, you know, think about this. It's got a nice red barn and it's got blue sky and it's got these trees and it's got this little brook coming through it. And we could maybe take pieces that were of similar color and put them together. But it would be tough to put it together as a puzzle. Well, we need that picture in this program as well. You know what? I'm the picture. I'm the sponsor and I'm the picture, which means that I have, to be a, I have to be a good picture. I have to try to live my life as I want them to try to live their lives. Now, sometimes my picture doesn't look too good, but they see it. I make sure that they see it because that's life and I want to I be real honest and real truthful with them. I wear glasses, and I haven't always worn glasses. When I went and had my eyes examined, actually what happened, I went to be examined uh, for my, my FAA flight physical so I could fly airplanes, and they, they hand you that little card, and you're supposed to read what it says on the card, but when they handed it to me, the nurse went back out of the room, and I looked at it, and I, could, I couldn't read it. And I thought, God, they're going to flunk me, and I won't be able to fly. And so I cheated. And, uh, but, but the next day I went to the eye doctor and I got glasses. I couldn't believe how poor my eyesight was until I got my new glasses because every day these were the eyes that I'd look through and I, I was cocking my head like this and, and that's how I, how I could make something out. Well, I think that the very same thing happens when we get into this program. And as a sponsor, it's so important that we help people get that new vision, that we're blind to what's really in front of us when we, before we get here. And we can help somebody all of a sudden have a crystalness to what's in front of them. Our job as a sponsor is to lead a person through the steps after having done it yourself. The reason I say it that way is that you can't teach somebody something you don't know. And that I do think it's okay to be a few steps ahead of the person. I don't think somebody has to have formally gone through all of the steps in order to, to then take on new people. Let me, um, if you don't mind, go through a, a number of what I call ideas and issues that I think will be interesting to you and they'll be helpful. Again, they're my thoughts, they're my experiences, it's not a book review. You be the judge whether I have anything to offer or not. The other thing that I should tell you 
that, as you can see, I'm working from some notes. I spent a lot of time thinking through what I wanted to share with you. And if you, I made copies of these notes of my outline. And if you buy one of the tapes, the people that are selling the tapes will give you one of these outlines, which will kind of help you maybe see how I've tried to structure this and maybe help you see how what you're listening to fits into the whole thing. Okay, denial. I'll tell you what I think about denial. It's like trying to drive from Portland to Seattle on the wrong side of the freeway. If we're lucky, we'll get to Hazeldale. And for sure, we're not going to get everyone else to turn around and go the same way. And that denial is extremely, extremely powerful, and that it's one of the first things that we need to work on with new people. Uh, I'll tell you another thing that's important to pass on to the people that you're working with, and that is that our disease, and that's what it is, is not a moral issue. That it shows itself in what we do and what we don't do. What I mean by that is that we're supposed to be doing certain things in life, and we don't do them when we're using. And we're not supposed to do certain things in life, and we do those things when we're using. So that's the sign of the disease. That's the outward sign of the disease. I mean, inside, in my brain, there's, there's probably, in the future, going to be a day when someone's going to be able to point to a certain little chromosome or something like that that says, yeah, that's the disease that this guy has. Well, until we get that, we have to look at what we can see, and that is in our behavior, and that... We're not responsible for the disease. We're responsible for the recovery. Another thing that I think is important that we share with new people is that don't let them think like they're the victim. Don't let it happen. I mean, you get people who say that, uh, oh, you know, geez, I, my boss did this, or my wife, da-da-da, and, oh, shit, my car broke down. Tough. In fact, that's how I do it. Tough shit. What are you going to do about it? If your car's parked in the Hollywood district and it won't run, what are you going to do about it? That's whatever. Also, I think that... that um, it's important that we teach people that if they don't like their life the way it is, change it. Don't just bitch about it. Change it. Another thing that, that, just a thought, is that it's said that everyone in this country is entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Think about that. Entitled to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. It means we have to work for it. And that's, this program allows us that opportunity to do it. You know, another thing I think in, that is important in, in working with people is that we don't let them think that this is like let's make a deal and that they can choose curtain number one, curtain number two, or curtain number three. Unless you know what's behind curtain number one, number two, and number three, and all of those are going to be good curtains for this person, don't let them choose the wrong curtain. Be strong. Make your suggestions. Let's talk about self-esteem. 
I'm I'm a bird hunter, and I hunt with hunt, hunting dogs that point. And I've it's a it's a fun hobby, and the most fun part of it is watching this animal do these wonderful things and helping train that animal to do it. Well, the good dog trainers, and I don't mean just hunting dogs, just all kinds of good dog trainers, have a philosophy that when they're training the dog to do something, it is so important that they train the dog to do it the right way. Because if they allow the dog to make a mistake, the dog learns from that mistake, and the dog wants to keep doing it the wrong way. And so you, what the dog trainer does is that he sets up his training session in such a way that the dog will not make a mistake. He's got a check cord, a leash on the dog. The dog can't jump in and get the bird. And so then every time he wants to get the bird, because remember, well, maybe you don't know, the point on pointing dogs is that when they smell the bird, they freeze, and the, dog, and the bird is kind of like a deer with headlights in its, in its eyes. The bird doesn't move, and it stays there, and then the hunter can come up. Well, if the dog thinks that he can get that bird, he's going to want to get that bird every time. So, again, you set yourself up so there is success. Now, I'll tell you another thing, another way to do this as a sponsor. If you're working with somebody and they're just kind of having a hard time feeling good about themselves and getting themselves moving and, and having some, some, what I call, little series of successes in their life, give them an assignment. Now, you're going to laugh at this, but I will guarantee this is proven, this works, and it works every time. The assignment is, why don't you clean your bathtub? And they say, what? And you say, clean your bathtub. Just do it, because I'm asking you to. So they go and they clean their bathtub. And while they're there, they got the Ajax out, and they clean the sink and then they clean the toilet, and then they clean the mirror, and then they go and wash the towels or bring new towels out, and they look around, and their bathroom's all clean, and they feel good about themselves. I'm telling you, it works. And, and sometimes we need to look for those opportunities to help these people, help us help people, have little series of successes. Another thing about self-esteem is that a lot of people try to connect it to something else like a car or clothes or a job or having pretty girls or something like that. And I think it's real important that we remind them that self-esteem doesn't come from those external things. It comes from feeling good about yourself. And usually that comes from doing good things. Another thing that happens is that sometimes people get in a habit of having low self-esteem. Oh, Kind of like some of the older people will remember Jackie Gleason. He had all these characters, and one of his characters was the poor soul. And the poor soul would stand with his shoulders all humped over like this, and he was just this poor guy that everybody felt sorry for. Nothing went well for him, and he couldn't do anything right. I'll tell you, you start to see your guys that you're working with get that little look, and you just say, hey, knock it off. Stop feeling so sorry for yourself. Actually say it. You're feeling sorry for yourself, and it's doing you no good. And I don't like it either. Tell them that. You know, a little about ego. There's good ego, and there's bad ego. I think that it's perfectly 
good for somebody to feel good about themselves. But they should feel good about themselves for the right reasons and that you should help them with that. If they feel good about themselves for the wrong reasons, you should point that out. You know, I'll tell you another thing that, that uh, just came up the other day. Somebody said to me, um, you know, I want to talk to you about so-and-so. He's, he's always talking about money. He's always talking about he's got this money. And, uh, you know, should I say something to him? Is he bragging or what? Well, I once heard somebody talk about going to a meeting in Dallas, Texas during the good years when oil and gas were big time down there. And he went to this meeting. He was a visitor. And one guy gets up and he says, Jesus, I just had the lousiest week. I lost $5 million. I invested in this in the grain options and God, I just lost it all. And another guy says, you know, I know exactly how you feel. Four of my wells gave up last week and uh, I had to call in some guys to work on it. It cost me $800,000 plus I lost a million five in revenue that week. And this meeting, it went on and on and on. And, and this guy thought, these cocky sons of bitches, you know. Who, you know, I'll tell you what you need to remember, that a million dollars to somebody is the same as 10 bucks to somebody else. And those guys in Texas were talking about what that was happening in their lives at that time. And that it's, it's important that we see in people that we work with that it's okay to feel good about yourself. It's okay to be successful. Very okay to feel good about yourself. Tell you another little hint. The mirror to know how you're doing is how other people treat you. Think about it. When you're doing well, people are friendly to you. People don't take shots at you. It's, 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 I didn't mean it that way either. <laughs> Usually, when you're not feeling good, you're lethargic or you just don't feel good, usually it's because you're either doing something that you shouldn't be doing or you're not doing something that you should be doing. And if you have that in your head and you see that the people that you're working with aren't feeling so well, look for those things. There's a reason for it. Bottom line on self-esteem, absolute bottom line, do good things, don't do bad things. Let's talk about slips for a second. First of all, they're not acceptable and they're not accidents. Slips are not acceptable and they are not accidents. If somebody that you're working with has a slip, you immediately start over and you start over from the beginning. You don't take a little burp step backwards and go forward. Something drastically was missed or drastically was wrong and you need to impress upon this person that they have to get it all. You can't take little bits and pieces of this thing. Another thing about somebody that has a slip is that you as their sponsor should demand that they tell their home groups or they tell their groups. If they keep it a secret, if they try to keep their old birthday, they will kill themselves because they will never feel good about their sobriety. Plus, it never ends the slip. That it's so easy to do it one more time 
because it's the same time, because it isn't over. Resentments. Tell you my bottom line on resentments. Nobody has ever done anything to me that I haven't done to someone else. That's the real truth of it. And it's awfully hard for me to be ticked off so much at somebody that I want to do something to them if I have done the same kind of behavior. And I think that when you're working with somebody, if, if you see that they have a resentment towards somebody, that you point that out. I, uh, I mean, if somebody's ticked off because their wife or their girlfriend was messing around, uh, well, excuse me, don't I remember you uh, last March with some... Yeah, right. Well, you just need to put it right back in their face so they can see that. A lot of people have resentments about their parents. Can't do anything about it. It's, it's, it's a done deal. It's past. I'll tell you what you can do about it is that you can be a good parent. You can show, by the way you live your life, that you're not going to make those same kinds of mistakes. Another thing, the way I look at, at resentments, it's the same thing. I just say, tough shit. And don't let them wallow in it. It's, it's done. Spirituality. Don't be afraid to voice and show your beliefs. Now, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about spirituality. And I'll tell you, the most spiritual thing that I've seen since I've been in this program is the complete change that a person goes through in their life. I mean, God, how does it happen? I mean, when you think about it, the crummiest people in the world become the nicest, most helpful people in the world. That's spiritual. We need to remember that. Don't be looking for the burning bush. I'll tell you another thing that I think uh, that I do is that I pray. And that, that, that I, I pray before I eat a meal. I say grace. I don't say uh, the normal grace that I learned as a kid. I, I pray. I talk. Dear God, thank you for our food and family and thanks for the, the help you gave me today on, on uh, talking with so-and-so and uh, please help me tomorrow. I don't feel good today and help me to have the strength to do what I have to do tomorrow and uh, oh, and so-and-so sick, please help them. Now, I would say that out loud in front of a person that I'm working with. I'd say, would you mind if we said grace? And I'd do it. And I'm not ashamed and I'm not embarrassed. A couple of us went to Palm Springs the other day, or for about four days, uh, for a little sunshine. And, and we ate in restaurants. And four men said grace before every meal, out loud. We didn't whisper it. We didn't care if anybody saw us. And, and some of us even blessed ourselves as we did it. That sends a message to people that we work with. Another thing I do is that I pray to know how best to act and that a grateful person can show their gratitude in how they live their life today. Relationships with spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends. You know, when you sponsor somebody, 
that's a big subject that comes up over and over and over again because it's such a big part of everyone's lives. I, I like to suggest when I work with people that they discuss what they want out of the relationship. They have to figure out, what do I want out of this relationship? And then they have to say or figure out, what am I willing to put into this relationship? And then I, I, I give them an assignment. I, I have them actually write this down over a series of days. What am I willing to put into this and what do I want to get out of it? Because if you don't know what the hell you're headed for, why are you in it? Or you're just, you're just kind of like a feather on the wind. You're just blowing on by wherever the wind's going to take you. Another thing, now, there'll be a number of people that wince at this. I don't think people should live together if they're not married. And the reason I say that isn't because of a, of a religious thing. It's because I have seen so many failures of people who need all the strength they have in the world to make a relationship go anyhow. And that if they have one foot out or their tippy toe in the edge of the sea at, at all times, it's really hard to make those tough, those tough commitments. And so I say, hey, don't. And if you, really, if you really want this person, if you want to be with this person, and you know why, then formalize it. Formalize that commitment. Make it be real. Another thing that I recommend is that you remind yourself what you love about a person. You know, it can be awfully easy when God, you're, you're married and you got all these little kids and she's tired all the time and you're kind of out of money and you need a new couch and uh, you got all these little problems that are going on. It's, it's awfully easy at that time to forget why you love this person. And I, uh, I give that as an assignment as well. Write down why you love them. Put it down on paper every once in a while to remind yourself. I mean, I love Kathy because she's pretty. No certain order here. She's pretty. She cares about people. She shows how she cares about people. She's a wonderful mother. She's a, she's a fantastic mother. Uh, our kids feel good about themselves. She's a great role model. She's active in, in our kids' schools. Uh, I mean, I, I know why I love this woman. And so I don't leave it to chance. And it isn't an accident. Another thing that I, I tell people that I work with, act like you love the person you love. Don't just say, oh, gee, I love you. Act like you love them. Another thing is that I encourage talking. Talking is important between people. And, and, I, and I also suggest little things like, you know, it's not Valentine's Day, but stop by Fred Meyer and get one of those little bouquets and take it home and just say, it's just because. I mean, you're, you're, telling, you're standing here telling me how much you love your wife. Go tell her. Another thing is that teach the people that you work with to show that they're sorry. Not to say they're sorry, to show that they're sorry. And that can be done by the way they change their lives and the way they conduct themselves. Another good hint that I'd like to pass along is that when people need, couples need to talk something out, recommend to them, especially if you think that it might be volatile, that they make a deal that they're going to leave the house and they're going to walk to the Broadway Bridge and back and have this talk. Works great. 
because if you had the ha- if you had the talk at home, somebody could get mad and go in the next room, right, or go get in the car and leave. If you're walking to the Broadway Bridge, you're going to keep walking and talking, because no one's usually no one is going to walk off in the other direction, and so you keep working on what it is you need to be talking about. Okay, this ring bells at this. This is so important. Teach the people that you work with how important it is of the role that you play in the other person's self-esteem. I mean, you might be going to the to a, a meetings and have a program and a sponsor and have a great life going and go to work. I'm, I'm doing this from the man's side right now. And, and you might have plenty of reasons to feel good about yourself. And your wife is home cleaning up throw-up, doing diapers, uh, talking to kids that can't talk, and 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 thinking, what the hell have I gotten myself into? And you come home and you say, Jesus Christ, don't you ever clean this place up? I can't impress upon you enough how important it is, if you want to have a good relationship with somebody, that you help them feel good about themselves. Relationships require work. They require sacrifice. I also believe that you need to point out to the people that you're working with that they have a duty to raise the children that they have created, that it's a partnership, and that they, this partnership should have plans. What do we want? What do we want in life? What are we willing to put into it? How are we going to do it? Two people planning a life together. I'll tell you another thing. Make sure that the spouse knows how to get a hold of you. All the people I work with, their wives or girlfriends, they know my number. And, you know, it's not like they're going to go rat to Bobby, but let me tell you that, that I've had a lot of little phone calls of, of very important hints that something is wrong, and I've been able to, if you want to call it, intervene before it became a big disaster. If you're sponsoring somebody... Fidelity is important. Adultery should not be acceptable. If your attitude is that you think you can, in your own life, screw around and, and have multiple sexual relationships with people while in a committed relationship, don't sponsor anybody. You are sending a terrible message of failure to that new person. If you want to be loved, you have to love. You know, from a practical standpoint, a couple of things happen. If you're screwing around, you have guilt. And when you have guilt, you act differently. You're not really in it, in that relationship. You don't feel good about it. And it's very difficult to work on the problems that every relationship has if you're half-assed into it. Tell you another thing that happens. Don't be surprised if the spouse of the person you sponsor gets jealous of you. It happens. You are not their enemy. What happens in many cases is that you know a lot more about them than they really care to have you know about them because the person that you're working with has shared those things with you. And some of those things don't make them look too good. But you're not going to be telling other people about it. You're not going to be going up and you know, going, oh, you bad actor, you, or, uh, it's just, it isn't going to happen that way.
sexuality. As a sponsor, don't back off of it. It needs to be dealt with. That, that there are people that come to this program with sexuality problems that are killers. And that it can be anything from being abused to being an abuser. It can be porno shops. It can be prostitution. It can be the kinds of things that make you feel shitty about yourself. And that as this person's sponsor, there's a temptation to want to kind of back off because who are you to be telling them or maybe even suggesting this or that? I'll tell you who you are. You're the one that can maybe help them save their lives. And that if you don't tell them how you feel about this kinds of, these kinds of things and help them kind of think it through, they probably won't get through because they're not coming to you at eight years old. They've been, they've been through, they've been living with this for a long, long time, and it has not gone away. Everybody has a past. Uh, we have done things that we're not proud of. They should be discussed. Why do you think you did that? Did you enjoy that? Um, how do you think that affects you today? I don't back off an inch on that stuff. I'll tell you another thing. When you see somebody that you're working with acting out, and by acting out, I mean maybe showing off or, or buying jewelry when they don't have money or, or uh, just being, trying to be somebody that they're not. I consider that to be acting out. And... I look at it as a sign of something that I need to be looking for. There's something going on here. And oftentimes it's because the person doesn't feel good about themselves. I'll tell you another thing, you men. There are a lot of men that were sexually abused as children. And they have kept it a secret. And they want to keep it a secret. And it is hurting them. And they didn't do anything wrong. You need to discuss that with these people. And there's, you need to ask about it. There are also a lot of men that, that are heterosexual, that have had isolated homosexual experiences, either really drunk or drugged up, Somebody maybe took advantage of them, or they wanted um, companionship or, or um, warmth, or they, they didn't know what they wanted, and they involved themselves in something that they think is very dirty, very ugly, and they are completely ashamed of it. You need to help them work that through. It's, they need to forgive themselves for that and go forward. Okay, I would be stupid if I didn't tell you or didn't address the fact that you will be working with people that are men that like men and women that like women. And that if you're a heterosexual, you need to click in your head that it's the same with them. It's the same as you. Don't, be, don't play old tapes if you have old tapes of, oh, that 
queer faggot or whatever. These are people that are trying to have a better life and that they, they are dealing with issues that don't have to be that different from those that you're dealing with. The number one rule in sexuality is respect. You teach these people that you work with to respect themselves. You teach these people to respect others. And acting out sexually gets them nowhere. You don't go to whorehouses for a kiss. <laughs> Selfishness. I was in a meeting one time, and a guy who, actually he was a visitor, raised his hand, and he said, boy, he was really mad at his sponsor. This son of a bitch, you know, he just, and he went on and on, and actually wasn't saying anything, and then finally he told what, what the problem was. Problem was that he called his sponsor because he had a problem that he needed to talk to, and the answering machine answered, and it said, you know what to do, beep. And this guy went on for about five minutes saying, you know, he tells me I know what to do. He should be there to tell me what to do. And he never got it that what he was supposed to do is leave a message after the beep. <laughs> he, was so, he was so selfish that he took this personally, like, like this guy had left a message on his machine just for him. <laughs> Don't bother me. You know what to do. Another thing that I make people do is that, that I make them ask me when they call me if I have time. Have you a moment? Am I catching you at a good time? I want them to know that my time is valuable and that I may have to call them back or ask them to call me back in 10 minutes or whatever. I have call waiting on all of my phones and, and I sometimes don't hang up for hours. And the way I do it is I try to manage my time. It's valuable. Don't let people abuse you with their selfishness of, a, of abusing your time. Some practical considerations in sponsorship. Consider sending a new person you're working with to the doctor for a physical exam. You can't believe how many people come in to the program so ill with low-grade infections, for instance, that they just don't have the energy to be doing the things that they need to be doing. Uh, also, uh, it, it kind of gives you a, um, a benchmark of their physical condition by going to a doctor. And it's, it's the start of being responsible for taking care of your body. Another or practical consideration is treatment. Now, I'll tell you, a number of years ago, I would, have, I would have probably suggested that if you had an opportunity to send a new person to treatment, you absolutely do so. But treatment isn't like it used to be. The insurance companies don't want to pay the money. They keep you for three or four days. I'll tell you what I look at now. Treatment isn't, isn't the beginning of recovery. It's the beginning of discovery. That they teach you a couple of things and they maybe detox you a little bit, uh, but um, it makes AA, CA, all the programs that much more important 
to, to do well from the beginning with a new person. Okay, another thing that I think that you need to be aware of is craving. Now, craving isn't just like you are when you're thirsty after you ran or you played tennis and, God, I just really want a glass of water or, or pregnant women wanting certain kind of ice cream. Craving can show itself in acting out that, that a person um, goes shopping when they don't have money. A person um, calls somebody up and, and tells them some big lie. Calls their parent up and, and tells them off. Uh, doesn't show up for work. When you see behaviors like this of a person that is just coming off of alcohol or drugs, definitely consider that this, this is craving. The body and the mind are wanting that drug so much that the person is acting out. I also believe that medications are proper and the new medications that they have are unbelievably helpful to loads and loads of us. That the Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft pills have, I have seen them take a person that had mood swings like this that just couldn't get it together, just couldn't keep it together long enough to have the series of successes. And those pills, they don't, they don't whack you out. They're not the kind of pills that, that, that hurt you. They level you out like this, and you have a chance to rebuild your life. I'm not a doctor, but I'm telling you, I have seen the miracle of these new drugs. Another thing that you need to consider in a practical way is professional help for the people that you're working with. There are some things that need extra special help. And there are some very, very good counselors in our community that are able to provide that kind of help. I also have some misgivings about some of the people and the treatment programs that they, they have. That um, I, I don't know how important it is to spend six months uh, talking about your mom and your dad. Uh, when when um, there are current issues that really need to be looked at and, and worked on. Another thing that, that we have to do when we work with people is money management. Help them spend their money. Help them not spend their money. Uh, it can also mean help them get the right kind of employment. Remember at all times that recovery is peaks and valleys. Don't get too high feeling how great this new person is doing, and don't get too low when they're in one of those valleys because it, there's going to be a swing. The whole idea, just like the medicine, is to get it to be in a level, level way. Pick the winners. If you're going to sponsor somebody, pick somebody that you think is going to make it. Now, I tell you, that's probably a really nasty thing to say, because who the hell are we to decide who's going to make it or not? Well, I feel like I, I'm pretty good at sizing things up, and I feel that way because I have done it, and I trust my, my senses. And frankly, I don't want to waste my time on somebody that I don't think is going to put the effort in. I'd, I'd rather have that little meeting that I talked about and say, you know, I don't think I'm the right person for you. No harm, no foul.
Choosing a sponsor. Men should sponsor men. Women should sponsor women. And it has to do with penises and vaginas. Remember that you can't keep it if you don't give it away. And you can't give it away if you don't have it. I am a, a pilot, as you heard me say. Uh, when I was getting my instrument rating, which allowed me, allows me to fly in the clouds. By the way, my plane is right, right there, right a couple of baseball fields away from this place. I had to have 40 hours of special instruction to get my, my instrument rating. And the rules say that you can do 20 hours with an instructor and 20 hours with another uh, licensed IFR pilot. Well, that sounded really good to me because I thought, yeah, I'll pay the guy for the 20 hours and I'll get one of my friends to do the other 20 hours for free. And so I suggested this kind of gently to the instructor. And he said, yeah, you're right. The rules do say that you can do it that way. And then he paused, and I was waiting for him to say something. And he says, but you could be sitting in that seat practicing 20 hours how to do it the wrong way. And you don't want to be flying in the damn clouds and do it wrong. And I think this program is very much the same way in picking a sponsor. That we need to, uh, we need to pick somebody that's got it, that knows how to do it. Somebody that's good at it. Vice versa. We need to be that person in order to help someone else. We've all heard the most important person is the new person. Wrong. Most important person is me. And it's because I can better take care of you if I think I'm the most important person and I treat my program accordingly. Look for somebody who's willing to be vulnerable. Don't, don't ask a, a clam to be your sponsor because you're not going to get anything out of them. Also, they should have a good program. Look and see if you think they have a good program. I'll tell you something that happened to me. I was in Costco one day, and I was there with one of my clients, and she is a really good-looking, blonde, flashy-looking woman. And we, we were making a call together, and I wanted to go to Costco, so she went in with me. And, I mean, this girl catches people's eyes. And one of the guys that I sponsor was in there in Costco with his wife. And I introduced them. And a couple of days later, actually maybe a couple of weeks later, he told me how badly that made him feel that I was in Costco with another woman. And I said, well... I said, let's look at that for a second. First of all, I might have been there with bad thoughts in mind. And, I might, and maybe I was screwing around with that girl. But it still has nothing to do with, with, I don't have to be perfect. I have to try to be perfect, but I don't have to be perfect to be your sponsor. And I wanted, I wanted him to know that I don't represent myself as that way, that I, I do make mistakes. That wasn't one of them. But it sure brought it home how important 
it is, I mean, you don't, you, you're not their God. Always remind them you're not their God. There is another one, and they, you should help them find that one. Pick a person to be your sponsor who has formally, formally taken the steps. Not necessarily all of them, but definitely is ahead of you. Pick somebody who is willing to put in the time, being unselfish. I'll tell you something, it's a sacrifice to be a sponsor. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. Uh, it's not a casual kind of thing. It takes energy. That means you've got to be up. Don't take on someone new if your efforts need to be focused on your program. If you feel that, that your program is weak, don't do it. Don't, don't start with someone. Start with yourself. I sponsored a guy, doesn't live in this town anymore, who was one of those that I had call me every day in the beginning because he needed to visit every day. He was sicker than most. It's not an exaggeration that he would get sometimes so confused and rattled that if he was to go from northeast Portland to southwest Portland, he might stop at three telephone booths to call me because of something that wasn't right. Or, I mean, he was a handful. And my family all knew it because, you know, they, you live in a house. with We have six children. And they would kept getting these phone calls also from this same man. Well, I put in my effort, and this guy's life completely changed. He became married. He, I helped him even get a good job of what he really wanted to do, and he moved away. He then had problems with his wife. Actually, before he moved away, he was having problems with his wife. And in my discussions with him, I told him that I felt that his marriage had already gone so far in the wrong direction that there were some irreparable things that had happened. And I, I didn't tell him to get divorced, but I pointed out that this probably couldn't get turned around. And he did divorce. Probably about three, four years later, I got a letter in the mail from him. I had called him every year on his birthday in this new town he lived in. And the letter told me that he felt that I had been abusive to him, that, that I had ruined his life, that I never should have told him to get divorced, and that he had talked to a lot of people about this, and that he now was in the kind of condition he was in because of me. When I read it, I reread it. <laughs> And then I reread it, and I wanted to defend myself. I called you and I read it to you, and I wanted you to say, you're okay, you didn't do anything wrong. And then I started to think, okay, do this the right way. Did I do something that I shouldn't have done? Could I have done something better and should have and knew it and didn't? You know, the reason I share this story with you is because when we work with people, we really care. We try to do our best, and sometimes maybe our best doesn't, isn't good enough. But I made the effort, and that's the bottom line I came to. 
the things that I told him, the things that I suggested that he do, I thought were the right things. You don't, you don't win them all. They don't all have to love you. You know, I, I heard somebody talk one time, they were a, the guy was a barber, and he, he lived, he was in AA, and he worked in a barber shop. He was a barber in a small town barber shop. And he sponsored a guy that, that came to the barber shop every day and spent like three hours at his barber shop. And he did this, the guy telling the story says that he, this guy came and he stayed there for three hours a day for like three and a half years in a row. And, and I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, God, what a great guy. This barber's really something. And then you know what the barber said? He says, I never liked that guy. <laughs> and, and I went away thinking about it. What a really great guy. I mean, he gave this man three and a half years of his life, three hours a day, and he didn't even like him. He must have really loved people and himself and God to do that. The commitment and sponsorship is to try to do our best. Take somebody on as a temporary sponsor for the reasons I mentioned before. Don't ask someone to be your sponsor unless you're willing to try to be a better person. Don't waste their time. Don't waste the opportunity. Uh, tell you another thing that happens, and it's very common. You start to work with a new person. They share their lives with you. You help them through some suggestions. You help them change their lives. And they start to feel pretty good, right? They go get new clothes, and they got rid of the old car, and they washed the new car, and life's looking pretty darn good. And then they start to think, but he knows where I came from. He knows what I was like. And they don't like that. They don't want anyone to know who they were. And there's a certain short period, I've noticed, where they kind of want to revolt against you. And you just have to recognize it and you just have to keep being you. And if they want to do something stupid, you have to point it out. I'm not going to meetings anymore. Coffee, same old people, same old talks. Nothing ever changes. Hit them with some humor. Well, at least now when you have to go to the bathroom, you get up first. Uh, <laughs> have people say, I feel like I'm going to drink. If I feel like I'm going to drink, I'll, I'll just go to meetings. Boy, oh boy, I hear somebody say that, I point out, hey, fella, this is a program of living, not as much as it is a program of not drinking and using. And that the whole idea here is to share what you've gotten, to show your gratitude. Don't be giving me that. I got mine. Hope you get your stuff. Growth. I believe that slow growth is good growth on this program. I could take a five-pound piece of pot roast, and I could cook that pot roast in 10 minutes, but you wouldn't want to eat it. If you're a cook, you know that you take that pot roast and you kind of, you, you put it in a hot pan and you brown it, and then you put some liquid in that pan and you cover it, and you maybe even put it in the oven and you cook it over a very, very long period. And that pot roast, when you cut into it, just falls apart. The other one, you would have needed a machete from the, from the jungle to cut into it. 
So slow, go, slow growth is good growth. If you're working with a guy and he's up to page 385 of the big book, the second week, slow him down. He'll think he knows it all. There'll be no surprises. Also, uh, I'll tell you another thing that I do. If I start to work with somebody that's brand new and is having difficulty tracking and just hasn't got it together, I say to them, let me do your thinking for you. You do the action. My thinker is better than your thinker. And that between the two of us, we can be pretty good at this. Um, I also say to people, let me tell you what I do. I, sometimes I say, hey, you're a dumb shit if you do that. Don't do that. And, and they get my message. But most of the time I'd say, let me, let me tell you what I'd do. An example of this is that I have been the sponsor to a number of doctors. Now, doctors go to school to learn that they know it all. And doctors are very difficult to work with in this program because they think they know it all. And I have been lucky that the doctors that I have worked with have been willing to keep an open mind, to not think they have all the answers and to know how important it is. I advise people I work with that are new not to talk at meetings. Don't let them raise their hand and try to be funny and, and try to one-up somebody. Or, uh, and I say to them, look, you're here to learn. And if you're thinking during this meeting about what you're going to say when you get called on, then you're not listening to what's being said. So don't talk. If somebody calls on you, your talk is, my name is Bob, I'm an alcoholic, I'm glad I'm here, I'd just like to listen, thank you. It's all thought out, don't have to rethink it, listen to what's being said. And I'll tell you another thing that, that I've seen, people come in and they, they hear some great talks and they're already verbal and they're kind of fun and they want to meet people and be, be somebody and so they'll either raise their hand or they'll give this this ha 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 funny talk and crack a few jokes and might not even be to the subject that the meeting is following and you know what happens about in the middle of it or at, toward the end they realize they got caught being a jerk and they've embarrassed themselves and they don't come back that to me is like the dog training thing don't let them make a mistake keep them in a process that keeps them away from the mistakes The steps. Start with the first step. Examples of powerlessness and unmanageability. Give them an assignment that might take two to three weeks of them carrying a little tiny piece of paper around and a pen and writing down little one or two words memories of examples of powerlessness and unmanageability in their lives. I don't do that with people until they've been around the program for a good long time. They can't do it right. They can't remember doesn't have to be done right away. Also, there's no hurry, you're looking for progress, and there's no, there's no end that we're trying to get to. The past is the past only when it's over. Help them make things be over. Teach them a little about the third step, about turning it over. Turning it over is turning over the results, not 
the effort or the action. Also, you hear people say the first person you need to forgive is yourself. Wrong. They're, you're last. The best way to forgive yourself is to change your life. Be aware of people that want to do uh, partial, be a first stepper, they are in a 12 stepper, meaning, yeah, I, I don't drink, and yeah, I'll tell you, I don't drink. Uh, and they don't want to work the steps in between. They're just not drinkers or users. Listening. Don't be so hung up on what they're saying. Focus on what they're doing. Look at their actions. Believe in what you see as their actions, not what they're telling you. Careful not to let them bullshit you. Don't let them ruin it between you and them by bullshitting you. Call them on it. Don't give them this much room for bullshit. Also, trust your hunches. Ask them the hard questions. Call a spade a spade. How far is too far? If somebody that you're working with just isn't doing it, fire them. Don't waste it. Don't let them go and say, well, AA never worked for me. I gave it a try. If they're not going to do it our way, AA's way, they're going to half-ass this thing. Don't give them the opportunity to fail. Let them go out and fail on their own and then come back and try to do it the right way. And there's nothing wrong with letting somebody hit their bottom. It's like an elevator. It's going down. They can get off on any floor. If they need to go to the sub-sub-sub-sub-sub basement, it goes there. My sponsor was a man by the name of Vic Curtin. He was the father of a, of a boy that I went to grade school with. And I loved him very, very much. He saved my life. He died after a lot of years on the program. While he was still alive, I, uh, I would hear on TV that, that KOIN TV at that time was doing the Jefferson Awards. And I figured that the Jefferson Award had to do with, with the fact that KOIN was on Jefferson Street, but I've since learned that it's a big national thing where they honor people that have volunteered their time to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. And every year I'd see these people that got the awards and they would be, um, you know, in United Fund or Perry Center or, uh, you know, Bethel. There'd be some organization that they worked for. And I thought to myself, what about guys like Vic, who doesn't really belong to this organization, who, who put in an effort on maybe two or three people and completely helped them change their lives? So I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter of nomination to KOIN nominating Vic Curtin for a Jefferson Award. And I told what a great guy he was and what he did and why he was a great guy. And I never heard back. When I wrote it, and after I wrote it, and talked about all the neat things about Vic, I said to myself, 
I can do that. I can do that too. I mean, I'm admiring it in him, and I can be that same way. And you know what? I am. I am. When Vic died, instead of a rosary, we had a, a memorial AA meeting. And I was looking in my files the other day, and I found a, a little talk that I gave. I wrote it out because I knew that I'd probably cry. And I reread it. I want to share it with you because it's exactly what we've been talking about here this morning. Opening talk, Memorial AA meeting, December 20th, 1987. Robert. We have gathered here tonight to give thanks for the life of Vic Curtin. It seems truly fitting that we express our gratitude and share our feelings in this most appropriate way, an AA meeting. New Year's Day would have been the close of his 36th year of continued sobriety and time on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Isn't it ironical that our friend had two diseases, both fatal, one which slowly took the life from him and the other, because of the AA program, brought life to him? Although AA has made its mark on the lives of so many without a def defined structure of leadership, certain people, by their wisdom, example, and effort, have stood out among the many. Vic was such a person. His grandchildren were there. Matthew, Jeffrey, and Mitchell, you should know that your grandfather was special, a star. If there were a Heisman Award or an Olympics for working with others to see the truth and then change their lives, he would receive the trophy and captain the team. When I came to AA, lost, confused, scared, and totally without direction, he was the one who took my hand, both figuratively and practically, and has been my friend, leader, father, brother, sponsor, and example ever since. I loved him very much. I will always love this man who showed me by his actions that he loved me too. Those of you who came to AA after Vic began to get sick missed much. Vic got Alzheimer's. Vic, I took Vic to meetings, and he didn't talk. He just was there. He was absolutely the best. I'm sure you'll get a good feeling for his gifts while others share tonight. There was a time some 15 or 16 years ago when the Loyola group was down to about 10 regular members. Vic's leadership and legacy to all of us shows in the fact that there are over 500 years of continued sobriety among our group today, over a thousand now. His wife, Mary, has told me the story of Vic's first meeting. A small room somewhere in northwest Portland, John Vic's sponsor, told him that the Irish were special cases and that fellow Irishman Curtin should know that an Irish alcoholic isn't going to be at peace until he's flat on his back with the rosary beads in his hands. Those of us who knew him well could both agree and disagree with this phraseology but all of us can attest to an inner peace that lived within our friend. I'd like to share one of my Vic stories, which I think best sums up the power of his spirit. He called me one afternoon after I'd been around about six months, asking me if I'd like to join him in visiting two of our AA friends who had just begun drinking again. They were father and son. I can still remember the excitement of going on this 12-step call with the master.
Here I was getting to play a part in saving their lives, and I was really pumped. We found them in a little trailer atop a lovely little hill in Clackamas County. They respectfully listened as Vic talked to them, but basically told us they'd handle it. As we drove off the hill, my head hung low. Vic pops out with a, well, we were successful. I said, you've got to be kidding. They kissed us off. We weren't able to do anything. He says in his quiet teacher way, we were successful. We made the effort. And that's all we were responsible for. Our goal was to make the effort. Vic was very successful. His effort is reflected in almost everyone in this room, either directly or indirectly. God gave him the energy and the wisdom to help others. But Vic made the effort to use those gifts. We are the better for it. Some people, years from now, might remember that Vic died around Christmas time in 1987. I'll see it another way. Vic lives in me, in Joe, in Cookie, in our families, and will live in those who have not yet made it to Loyola or AA. His spirit and teachings will be passed on and on and on. Vic Curtin is a life which has made a difference. How exciting to be a part of it. I'm going to leave you right now, and I'm going to go to a wedding. We have six children, and we love them all. I didn't get an invitation to the wedding in the mail. I lived with my children as they have grown up. Our kids love us. They love me. They like me. This is the, one of the benefits of the program, that I get to see my little girl start a new life with a good guy. She's, she chose well. And she could choose well because she is she could have what she wants. I got mine. You got yours. And we need to keep passing it on. Don't be afraid to be a sponsor. Don't be afraid to be a sponsoree. It takes our lives to a new plateau. A plateau is like the glasses, new glasses. You just can't believe what's out there until you get there. Thanks for listening.